Do you, uh, do you ever wonder what people walking outside these walls on, on Sunday morning might think about what's going on in here? Um, do you ever wonder what they think of our congregation, about us, and about what we're, we're doing? Uh, did you know that in the early centuries of the church, outsiders, uh, pagans, uh, many of them thought that Christians were incestuous. Uh, they, they heard believers call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, and then sometime later they would see a man and a woman who had been previously calling each other brother and sister, they would see them get married. And they would think that was strange. They would think it's incestuous. And we can somewhat understand why early pagans would think that Christians were incestuous. Did you also know that um, early pagans thought that Christians perhaps dabbled at times in cannibalism? Uh, they heard Christians talking about eating Jesus' body and blood. The, the Lord's Supper actually was often closed to outsiders. Uh, in other words, unbelievers were sometimes dismissed before the church took communion, so uh, they were left to wonder what happened after they left the assembly. What were they doing eating Christ's body and drinking his blood? It seemed like cannibalism to some early pagans. Did you also know that early pagans sometimes viewed Christians as, as anarchists uh, and, and treasonous? Uh, Christians refused to go to the, the local temple for Caesar, uh, to pay tribute to Caesar. Uh, in other words, Christians refused to offer incense and worship uh, Caesar. And, and this led to the belief that Christians uh, were traitors uh, at times and opposed to Caesar. So many um, slaves and women and impoverished persons came to trust in Jesus in the early days of the church that, that many in the, the highest echelons of Roman society viewed Christianity as a religion for slaves, as a religion for women, and as a religion for men of weak mind. Through vast portions of the history of the Christian church, believers in Jesus were looked down upon, were sometimes viewed with suspicion, uh, and other times misunderstood. It wasn't long before the church began to suffer scorn, and then actually suffer physical persecution. What were the people of God called to do? What are we called to do in a context where Christianity is misunderstood, sometimes even willfully? We are called to do what those first Christians were called to do. To lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Lifting up Christ in word and deed is what we learn about today as we continue our study in First Peter. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 22. The uh, chapter numbers are the larger numbers in the text, and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 1015. The, the first readers of 1 Peter were God's elect exiles scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. These believers in Jesus, they were facing oppression for their faith. They had refused to conform to the passions of the world, and so they were sometimes greeted with surprise and scorn and slander. And Peter wanted to remind the recipients of this letter that they are strangers and sojourners, and therefore they should live like it. Their hearts and ours don't find a final home here on earth. And so Peter tells them and us to embrace our exile. Peter has said that embracing our exile means that we must live in light of the last day, the day of Jesus' return. Living in light of our exile means that we must love our brothers and sisters in Christ, long for God's word, and serve the Lord Jesus by proclaiming him with our lives and with our lips. Most recently in our study of his letter, Peter has said that living as an exile means living like Jesus. Beginning at chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Peter has turned to address various institutions and relationships that we come into contact with in this world. Uh, Peter has told believers to fear God and to honor the emperor. Christians, according to Peter, are to honor the governing authorities. That's what Jesus did. He feared his Father in heaven, even as he suffered under the governing authorities on earth. Peter has also told household slaves that they were to do what is right and righteous, even when their masters punished them for it. These Christians were not to revile in return 
but they were to follow the way of Jesus, suffering as he suffered for doing good. Last week, we thought about Peter's instructions to husbands and wives. Wives were called to imitate Jesus' character and honor their husbands in authority over them, even if they were like Abraham and weren't the best husbands. Be like Sarah, be like Jesus, and entrust yourself to God, Peter said. Peter then turned the tables on husbands and called them to honor their wives, just like they were to honor the emperor. Christian wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. So, they are royalty in God's sight. Men and women will reign with Christ in glory, and therefore, husbands need to lift up their wives. And this, too, is Christ-like. Husbands are called to be Christ-like for Jesus. He, he got underneath His bride and is even now lifting her up to glory. In some, Peter has been saying, to live as an exile, you must live like Jesus. What Peter has said before, he says again in our text today. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, Peter once again says, live like Jesus. Peter gives some practical exhortations to that end. But more importantly, Peter goes for the heart. If we are to live like Jesus, then Jesus has to be lifted up in our own hearts. Peter goes one step further. Peter tells us to lift up Jesus in our hearts, and then he tells us why. He says, because Jesus was lifted up for us and for our salvation. So if you wanted to boil the message of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, down to a single sentence, it would be this. Lift up Christ, for Christ was lifted up for us. Lift up Christ, for Christ was lifted up for us. In fact, we're going to study 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22 in two sections under those two headings. Remember to lift up Christ. And secondly, remember that Christ was lifted up for you. As we turn to our first point, remember to lift up Christ. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, in these verses, Peter appears to leave behind specific human institutions, the institutions that he was addressing previously, government, the workplace, and marriage. And now he offers pastoral counsels to these beloved sojourners that are more general in nature. And at the heart of it all is the heart. What, what comes out of our mouths, whether we're speaking with fellow believers or unbelievers, was first at home in our hearts. In these verses, Peter calls for a tender heart. You see that in verse 8. And a heart that honors Christ as the Supreme Lord. You see that there in verse 15. If we are to obey Peter's commands and counsels in these verses, then Christ must be lifted up in our hearts. In verse 8, Peter says, finally. And as you can see, there is text that follows that finally. So Peter doesn't really mean finally in the sense that this is the absolute last thing he's going to say in his letter. We've got more letter before us still. This finally is really in relation to the portion of Peter's letter where he's giving counsels on, to, on how to relate to others in this world. Peter is beginning to conclude the section that began in verse 13 of chapter 2. 
Peter, even as he says, finally, he broadens his audience. You see there, he says to all of you, where Peter had previously addressed different groups in the congregation, he now addresses the whole church community. And Peter gives a series of positive exhortations there in verse 8, followed by a series of negative exhortations in verse 9. In verse 8, Peter essentially says, lift up Christ in your attitude toward others. While in verse 9, Peter calls for believers to lift up Christ in their answers, their responses toward others. So if you wanted to, you can actually arrange the positive exhortations there in verse 8, chiastically, in a chiasm. And notice the first exhortation is have unity of mind. It has a parallel with the last exhortation in verse 8. Have a humble mind. And sympathy, as you can see, has a parallel with a tender heart. And in the middle of it all, we find brotherly love. Lift up Christ in your attitude toward others. Peter, remember, he is addressing a a tense and pressurized situation. It is so easy to let the difficulties of of living in exile, living in a place that's not your home, so easy to let those difficulties corrode our love for one another and our love for our neighbor. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. John 13, 35. Our love is in essence an echo of the love of our elder brother as the writer to the Hebrews calls Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. In in this command, we lift up Christ and His love as we express love for one another and for our neighbor. Peter not only calls us to lift up Christ through love, but he also calls us to have one mind. We pursue unity through humility. That's the only way that we can come to have one mind. Humility is getting underneath our, our brother or sister's burdens and lifting him or her up. Considering him before we consider ourselves. Humility is yielding or conforming our plans to our brother's plans. Humility is is giving up our preference, our position and priority for the sake of another. Pursuing unity and putting on humility is what Paul called the church in Philippi to do back in Philippians chapter 2. And there Paul used Jesus as the supreme example of of humility. And as we gather here each Lord's Day, as we see each other throughout the week, consider who you can serve. Whose burden can you get under? Who can you surrender? What can you surrender for the sake of another? We lift up Christ by yielding our preference to Christ's preference for us. We yield our preference even to the preferences of our brothers and sisters. We lift up Christ in that way. We lift up Christ through love and humility of mind, but also through sympathy and a tender heart. Jesus sympathized with us in our weakness, and we ought to sympathize with our brothers and sisters as they walk through difficulties. The idea of sympathy means to share in the feelings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To share their feelings, we must listen to their fears, their faults, their frailties. And as we do... We ought to respond with a tender heart, which literally means compassion. Having compassion means having, having a soft spot for our fellow brother or sister, for our fellow believer, and for their trials. And wasn't our Lord Jesus marked by compassion? He viewed the people of his day, of his day as sheep without a shepherd, in need of teaching. He, he cared for the hungry and for the helpless. His heart was moved by the broken and the brokenhearted. We lift up Christ as we live with sympathy and a tender heart like Him. And this needs to be our attitude and orientation toward one another, especially as we live in a world that is hard and harsh. We cannot take up the ways of the world and respond to one another in the same way the world responds. This is why Peter tells us in verse 9 that we cannot repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Here we see the call to lift up Christ in our our answers, our responses to evil. Peter has already reminded household slaves in chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, that they were not to respond in this way. They weren't to respond to their masters because Jesus, he did not respond with evil or with reviling. And now, Peter, he reissues this command and he gives another. Instead of reviling, Peter says, bless. We could put this command in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Christians can trust God to right all wrongs. We can trust God to vindicate on the last day. So we don't, we don't have to lash out in anger or fear. Instead, we can purpose to bless those who curse us. When our dear Savior was being unjustly treated, when He was being maligned and mocked, He prayed that the Father's blessing of forgiveness would fall on those who reviled Him. We refuse to revile and return evil for evil. And instead, we purpose to bless. And when we do, we lift up the character of Christ in our responses, in our answers to evil. These commands, inside and outside of the church, apply. We ought to behave this way, inside these walls and outside of these walls. And we ought to do this because we're called to this, as Peter says there in verse 9. This is part of God's purpose for us. Our God has purpose that blessing and being a blessing are good works that He's prepared beforehand and that we should walk in them. We cannot merely be known for what we refuse to do, but we must be known for what we actually do, being and bringing a blessing. We have been positively called to bless one another and to bless others. We have been commissioned as priests in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It was priests who gave God's blessing. And we are to extend God's blessing through word and deed. We live and love like Christ because of the inheritance that we have received and will receive. In fact, that word obtain is perhaps better translated inherit. Peter has already spoken of the inheritance that we will receive because of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And now Peter effectively says, as those who will obtain, as, as those who will inherit a blessing, bless others. Why? Why can Christians lift up Christ and choose to bless instead of curse in our responses? Well, to, to answer that question, Peter quotes Psalm 34. You remember we, we read it earlier. Peter quotes Psalm 34 there in verses 10 through 12. Psalm 34, it points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who blessed even while he was cursed. The particular section that Peter quotes from in Psalm 34 calls for believers to control their tongues as Peter has just done in verse 9. The psalm carries the, really the same ethical force as Peter's exhortation, turn away from evil and do good or bless. And then the why comes there in verse 12. Do you see it there? Why? Why, why bless? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The sovereign God... He sees. He knows. The Lord will judge. So believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, they don't have to revile. They don't have to seek revenge. We don't have to take matters into our own hands because they are in the very capable hands of the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Peter is clear. Just as the psalmist was, God is for His people and He is also decidedly against those who do evil. This is what it looks like to lift up Christ and entrust your soul to the one who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. In verses 13 to 17, you'll notice that Peter has not shifted from his subject of, of lifting up Christ, living like Christ, giving answers that are like Christ. He is simply applying the same idea in another scenario. It, now, in, in verses 13 to 17, Peter much, is, is very much addressing the circumstance of what believers should do when they're actually met with evil for doing good. How then shall we live when we do good and still suffer? How do we lift up Christ in our suffering, in our afflictions? Well, in verse 13, Peter says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? You, you might answer Peter's question by saying, Caesar, <laughs> Caesar's there to harm you for doing what's good. In Peter's day, the Roman Empire had not quite turned forcefully against believers. They were, they were actually on the precipice of such a turn. But, but generally speaking, those who do good did not need to fear the emperor. They did not need to fear the governing authorities. It was also true that even if Caesar harmed Christians for doing good, 
Believers could not be harmed by Caesar in an ultimate sense. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, My Father, who has given them to me, that's God's people, God's sheep. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. In, in this letter, Peter himself has said that believers in Jesus have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You see, P- uh, Caesar cannot ultimately harm you, for God is keeping you safe in Christ. So, be zealous for what is good. Generally speaking, you're not going to suffer for doing what is right and righteous. So, so go ahead and, and zealously practice righteousness. That's true for us today too, right? If we are obeying the laws of the land, if we're doing what is right and righteous in God's sight, generally speaking, we're not going to be punished for it. Cross the speed limit, on the other hand, and someone may in fact punish you for that. But generally speaking, you're not going to suffer for doing what is right and righteous. So, so go ahead and, and zealously practice righteousness. And still, Peter, he's a man of nuance. Yes, this Galilean fisherman, he knows how to thread the needle. While on the one hand, it's generally true that you're not going to suffer, you're not going to be harmed for doing what is right and righteous, it is still possible in this fallen world that you might suffer for righteousness' sake. And so Peter, he ushers in a qualification there in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Well, isn't that befuddling? Somehow, Peter thinks that there is blessing in suffering for righteousness' sake. And do you know why? Well, you need only think of Jesus. He suffered for righteousness' sake. And God the Father raised him from the dead and blessed him with a name that is above every name. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Suffering, and we must really grasp this, Suffering is not incompatible with the Christian life. Suffering is not incompatible with the Christian life. Rather, suffering is the path and pattern of the Christian life. Because it was the path and pattern of Christ's life. You will be blessed if you suffer like Jesus. Lift up Christ in your suffering, in your affliction. Christians in the first century, they counted it a blessing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Go, go and read through the book of Acts this afternoon, and you'll see Christians praising God and rejoicing for their suffering and affliction for Jesus. They, they get arrested, they get flogged, they come back to their fellow believers, and they tell them with joy what happened. They get arrested, and they get thrown in prison, and then they start praising God, singing. The first believers counted it a blessing to suffer for Jesus because in doing so, they had the opportunity to lift up his character and work to share in his sufferings. They had the opportunity to represent Jesus to those in need of him. We struggle with comprehending suffering for Jesus today, don't we? Uh, we, We don't want to suffer. And this is really where we have to wrestle in our spirits. Do we, do we want comfort more than we want conformity to Jesus Christ? Is Christ our highest good or is comfort our highest good? What if it takes suffering, suffering for the Savior, for Him to be lifted up and exalted in our lives? Consider the high blessing and privilege it is to lift up Christ in suffering, to, to show the world That he is worth everything. And even to show the world a small picture of his suffering. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, in verse 14, Peter keeps, he just keeps pressing in. Not only does he say, be zealous for good and be blessed for suffering, but he also says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't don't be afraid of those who persecute you or who put you to death. 
Peter says. Peter's just channeling Jesus. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Brothers and sisters, God is in charge. You don't need to be afraid. Persecution is not merely oppression. It is also an opportunity to show the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Peter actually says two things there in that phrase at the end of verse 14. He says, first, have no fear of them. And then he says, nor be troubled. And and this is actually Peter's way of saying, don't fear what they fear. Uh, Don't don't worship Caesar. Don't, Don't fear Caesar. Fear Christ. Set him apart as Lord. Here is where Christianity created friction with the prevailing pagan religion in the Greco-Roman world. Christianity claimed and claims that Jesus was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This did not sit well with Caesar or the citizens of the Roman Empire. Caesar was likened to a god and he was to be worshipped. But Christians were committed to worshipping Jesus alone. He is the only Lord. And that meant suffering was sure to come. And it did come. So here is what Peter is saying in verses 4, 14 to 16. Lift up Christ as the one true Lord in your heart as you suffer. Let Him be uppermost in your affections. And you know what? If the Lord Jesus Christ is lifted up as the Holy Lord in your heart, then you are prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. This is what actually prepares you. Jesus Christ being lifted up in your heart, being honored and revered. And do you know why this prepares you? Because your hope is Jesus. Our answer in suffering is not necessarily a fine-sounding argument. Our answer is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. That's not to say that we cannot have prepared arguments or apologetic arguments to offer to unbelievers as we suffer. But, But over and above those prepared apologetic arguments, we have the Lord of glory to offer them. He is our answer. And and deep down, our unbelieving family and friends know that Jesus is Lord. That's why people curse Jesus and not Muhammad. It's why people curse Jesus and not Buddha. People curse Jesus under their breath or out loud and in their hearts because they know deep within their conscience that Jesus is Lord. And they're mad at Him. And this is why setting apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts prepares us to give an answer. He is our answer. He is our defense before God the Father and before men. His suffering answers to our sin and to all of the sins of all of those who ever turn from them and place their faith in Him. When we suffer for Christ, when we suffer for doing good and doing so without reviling, then the Lord may be pleased to raise questions in the hearts of those around us. They may even ask us, how can you endure this treatment and be hopeful? And so with gentleness and kindness and respect, we can say, because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And I know that I too will get up from my grave because Jesus got up from his. We don't have to be argumentative in our evangelism for the Holy Spirit is in control. We simply need to communicate the truth that Jesus died to save sinners like us and that he was raised from the grave. He accepts all who come to him in repentance and faith. And we should note carefully what Peter says here. We should note carefully that our God expects us to be respectful of those who disagree, even those who might oppose us and oppress us. We must always remember that opponents of the gospel, well, they're made in God's image. And therefore, to honor God is to honor them. They're made in God's image, and therefore, we must always refrain from reviling. We must always be respectful. And as verse 16 says, we must have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And did you notice that Peter expects for slandering to come? Not if slandering should come, but when it comes. You must have a good conscience. Christians who suffer and who are oppressed need to maintain a good conscience by good conduct throughout the whole course of their suffering. 
In other words, Peter is urging believers to have such holy conduct that their consciences don't accuse them for how they've treated their persecutors. Do not shame Christ through your behavior. Rather, let those who oppress you be put to shame by their poor behavior. And so Peter states the obvious there in verse 17. You see what Peter says? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here's the bottom line on verse 17. If we have to suffer, it should be for doing good, doing what is right and righteous. And if we have to suffer, we should know that it's God's will. If it is God's will, then we can be sure that He has a purpose in our suffering. For us to proclaim Jesus and to be conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus. In verses 8 to 17, Peter has exhorted us to remember to lift up Christ, to lift up Christ in our attitude toward others, uh, in our answers, and in our affliction. And now in verses 18 to 22, Peter tells us why. This is our, our, our second point. Remember that Christ was lifted up. And as we move into our second point, read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Uh, Years ago, I was sitting in a, a systematic theology class for seminary, my professor read these verses. Uh, and then afterward, he reminded us all that in Second Peter, Peter said that some of the Apostle Paul's writing is hard to understand. And then he said this, pot, meat, kettle. S- some of what Peter says here is, uh, is hard to understand. Still, there's an important principle of biblical interpretation that we we need to hold on to as we approach these verses. I could, uh, I could quote chapter 1, paragraph 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith to elucidate this principle, but instead I'll just uh, quote Alistair Begg, who puts the principle like this much more simply. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. We're going to spend the lion's share of our time focusing on the plain and main things. Here's the first main and plain thing in these verses. Verse 18, you see it begins with the word for. That word for, what's it doing in our text? How is it serving what Peter has said and what Peter will say? Well, Peter has just told believers to lift up Jesus in response to those who revile them. And now Peter tells them why. Believers should lift up Jesus in their suffering for or because Jesus was lifted up for us. That's what Peter goes on to say. We lift up Christ in our suffering because Jesus or for, Jesus was lifted up for us in suffering. The the main things and plain things that Peter is talking about here are also seen in the beginning and the end of the paragraph. You see there in verse 18, Peter, he talks about Jesus' work, about his death and his resurrection. And then you'll notice toward the end, once again, toward the end of the paragraph, that Peter speaks of Jesus' resurrection, which of course presumes his death. That's at the end of verse 21. And because Jesus has been raised, he's also ascended into heaven. He's ruling over all things. Jesus' work, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is what Peter is exceptionally clear about. And it needs to shape how we think about the apparently muddy middle. It might be muddy to us, but it's not muddy to our God. Just as the the walls of this building, right, they have a determinative effect for what can happen inside here. So the the outer limits of the paragraph, they've got to shape our interpretation of the interior. Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension will shape and determine our reading of the central verses about proclamation, about Noah and baptism. So what does Peter say about Jesus' work? 
What does he say about Jesus' death and resurrection? He tells us there that Jesus suffered. He suffered once for sins. Jesus offered the once-for-all sacrifice in his death on the cross. The, the sacrifices of the Old Testament occurred again and again and again because they could never take away sin, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. And a few verses later, the writer of the Hebrews echoes what Peter says here by telling us that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Jesus offered one sacrifice. And he offered that sacrifice, as we see here, as the righteous one. Jesus was completely and perfectly righteous. He kept the whole law. He kept its outward forms, and he kept the inward intentions of the law in his heart. Too often there's a, a gap, right, between our behavior and our belief. But that was never the case for Jesus. He was righteous. His keeping of the law was filled with integrity. He is the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous ones. You see, Jesus was sinless. He knew no sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He committed no sin, as Peter has already said in chapter 2, verse 22. If Jesus suffered for the unrighteous, as we're told there in verse 18, that means that he was suffering as a substitute. He was not suffering for his sin, for he committed no sin. Rather, he was suffering for the sins of others. He suffered for the sins of people like you and me. He was standing and suffering in the place of the unrighteous. In the third phrase there in verse 18, we learn the goal of Jesus' suffering. This is perhaps one of the sweetest phrases in Peter's letter, maybe even in the New Testament. Jesus suffered, he died, that he might bring us to God. That's the goal of Jesus' suffering. That's the goal of His atonement, to make us at one with God. God long announced through the Scriptures that this was His goal, that we might be His people, and that He might be our God, and that we might dwell with Him. And what we're learning is that Jesus' death accomplishes this. Our sin separated us from the Holy God, and the only way that we might be brought back to God was by God Himself taking matters into his own hands. This is why the eternal son, the second person of the triune Godhead, took on flesh and became a man. This is why Jesus had to live a righteous life. And this is why he had to redeem us through blood. He had to do what we cannot and could never do. Jesus, as the end of verse 19 tells us, was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. In other words, Jesus was raised from the grave in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus was made alive in the flesh too. Three days after his death, he got up from the dead bodily. People touched him and they felt him. Everywhere the scriptures speak of resurrection, they speak of resurrection of body and soul. Uh, just go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 later this afternoon and you'll find it to be so. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45... Paul will say that by his resurrection, Jesus became a life-giving spirit. In other words, Jesus now gives eternal life through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that Jesus was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, by his resurrection from the dead, the Holy Spirit showed that Jesus was perfectly righteous and that he had earned eternal life for God's people. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And now, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, raises the spiritually dead. Jesus has defeated sin and conquered the grave, body and soul, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a reason that Peter leaves the emphasis on the fact that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. And that's because it's going to serve what he says next. But, but before we go there, before we go where Peter goes... We need to pause and apply verse 18 to our own hearts and lives. Friend, do you find yourself, do you see yourself there in verse 18? Read it again. See if you see your life in this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Friend, do you recognize that you are unrighteous. 
That's who we are in this verse. We're the unrighteous. And we are in need of Jesus' righteousness. Do you recognize that Jesus has died in the place of sinners to bring them to God? Did you know that you can draw near to God today because of what Jesus has done? Friend, confess your unrighteousness. Agree with God that you're a sinner. That you've rebelled against Him. That's what sin is. It's choosing to live your own way rather than His way. Agree with God that you're a sinner and that you deserve to suffer for your sins. In fact, you deserve to suffer the same way that Jesus suffered. But do more than agree with God that you're a sinner. Agree and adore God for offering His one and only most beloved Son to stand and to suffer in your place. Rejoice that Jesus, the righteous one, died for unrighteous ones like you and me. Rejoice that three days after his death, Jesus was made alive. He got up from the dead. And that he has power to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Friend, turn from your sin and believe that Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for you. That he might bring you to God. Come to him today. In repentance and faith. Now, as we turn to consider what is apparently the messy middle of verses 18 to 22, we need to remember what Peter has said. That we are to lift up Jesus because Jesus was lifted up on the cross and lifted up from the grave for us. These verses must somehow connect to what Peter has said and will say. They must be relevant to elect exiles who suffer. Who, who need to think about how to live in conflict, perhaps with others in this world. And they must connect to Jesus' saving work. A key word there in verse 18 is being. Do you see that word being in verse 18? You can think of the word being as being something of an equal sign. Um, what is said in the first half of the verse is equal to what is said in the second half of the verse. In other words, when Peter says that Christ suffered for sins... What he means is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. When Peter says that Christ can bring us to God, we know that's true because he's been made alive in the Spirit. And he now has that power and authority. And verses 19 to 22 are some of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament to interpret. And in full disclosure, uh, you should know that scholars and preachers typically uh, recognize that these verses are often interpreted in kind of one of three ways. Uh, I'm... I'm not going to spend time walking us through those three interpretations to elucidate their strengths and weaknesses uh, of each one. There's a time and a place for that. That's beneficial in certain scenarios, but this is not that time or that place. I'd be happy to recommend resources to you if you want to read through those uh, three different interpretations. But for now, I'm just going to offer you where I've landed. And I'll be honest, the text is difficult, and I could be wrong. But let me give it my best shot. So here it is. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus preached through Noah to disobedient men and women who would not believe. And because they did not believe, they are now in prison. That is, they are in hell. That's the simple sum and substance of what I think Peter's saying in these verses. So let me say it again. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus preached through Noah to disobedient men and women who would not believe. And because they did not believe, they are now in prison. They are in hell. And let me just work, work that out through a few supporting scriptures. In his second letter, so the next letter over, Peter will call Noah a herald, a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He's already said in this letter that by the Spirit of Christ, that the prophets of the Old Testament preached about the coming of Jesus. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus was proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets of God, by the Spirit of Christ. Noah was certainly one such prophet and preacher because the ark, as we'll see in just a moment, was a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in Peter's second letter, we know that those who sinned against God were cast into hell and committed to chains of gloomy darkness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. So here's the conclusion again. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus preached through Noah to disobedient men and women who would not believe. And because they did not believe, they're now in prison. 
They're in hell. Now, what would this, what would this Holy Spirit preaching of Jesus in the days of Noah, what would this have meant for Peter's first readers? What's the payoff? Like, practically speaking, how would this help Peter's readers and undergird his argument? How does it help us? Well, Peter has openly acknowledged that his readers live in a time of testing and trial, just as Noah lived in a day of difficulty, where he faced scorn for his faith and yet had to persevere in proclaiming, believing, and trusting in God. He persevered by continuing to build. So Peter's readers, they too, live in a day of difficulty where they faced scorn for their faith. And they too must persevere in proclamation and trust in God by doing what is right and righteous, by doing what He commands, building their lives on the rock that is Christ. Peter invites believers to remember that Noah and his family, though small in number, were saved and brought safely through. Throughout this letter, Peter has been assuring his readers that they too will be brought safely through. They will obtain God's blessing, the salvation of their souls. So they should persevere in proclamation and faith like Noah. Suffer for doing good like Noah. Believers don't revile. Don't seek revenge. Instead, trust God and His judgment. Just like Noah trusted God and His coming judgment on the world. So what's the payoff for us? I hope you've been able to see some highlights of that coming. Do we think our day is any different than the day of Noah? Is it any different than the day of the readers of 1 Peter? Is not the Christian faith often the subject of scorn? Is not our pursuit of righteousness, perhaps exemplified sometimes by the protection of life, by biblical sexuality, by setting apart the Lord's Day for worship, but most especially... Our proclamation of a crucified, buried, and risen Savior of sinners. Is not our faith often considered a a blind faith? An an ethic of a narrow-minded, bigoted people who just do the same thing week after week after week. And yet, what should we do? Like Noah, and like Peter's readers, we ought not revile. We ought to be gentle, respectful, tender-hearted, full of love, and kind. And we ought to trust God. We should not change our message. Noah didn't change his. The flood is still coming, friends. It's still coming. God's judgment is still coming, friends. It's still coming. Noah didn't change his message. Peter doesn't tell his readers to change theirs. Instead, we ought to tell our friends, our co-workers and neighbors that we will persist in hope because Jesus died and is now alive. We hold out hope to these friends and neighbors and co-workers because we love God and we love them and we want to see them escape the judgment of God, the wrath that is coming. We are not in danger. They are. We don't want them to suffer the same fate as those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. They did not survive. All of their objections to Noah, they didn't survive. Just as judgment was coming in Noah's day, so judgment will come one day. God has promised that he will judge the world by Jesus. And we want our friends, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers to be prepared for it. And just as the ark was a picture of salvation that was to come in Jesus, so too our baptism is a picture of our salvation in Jesus. There is a correspondence between them. Where is there a parallel between baptism and the flood? Well, before his death on the cross, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus told his followers that he had a baptism to undergo. Jesus was saying that he had to be immersed in the flood of God's wrath on the cross that was due to our sin. And indeed, he was immersed in the flood of God's wrath. Darkness covered the whole land and Jesus was judged. Just as Noah and his family were kept safe from the flood of God's wrath on the world in the ark, so we are kept safe from the flood of God's wrath against our sin in Jesus Christ. He is our ark, and we escape the flood of God's wrath against our sins through Jesus. You see, in baptism, we visibly proclaim our salvation. We proclaim 
that it is Jesus' death and resurrection that brings us safely through the floodwaters of God's wrath. In our baptism, we visibly proclaim that Christ was put to death in the flood of God's wrath and that He was raised to newness of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. In our baptism, we show that we are united to Christ in a death like His and we will be raised with Christ in a resurrection like His. Romans 6.4 Baptism is not a mere washing off of the dirt. No, it's a picture of our salvation. The waters of baptism preach salvation for those who believe. And they preach judgment, coming judgment for those who do not believe. Those who do not hide themselves in Christ and identify with Him in His death and resurrection, they will be subject to a flood of God's judgment. And in verse 21, Peter says something that's, at first glance, it's challenging. Right? He says that baptism now saves you. We need to understand what Peter's saying here. The, the scriptures teach that there is salvation in nothing and no one else but Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. We're not saved through baptism. After all, the thief on the cross, he wasn't saved through baptism. Jesus promised him that today he would be with him in paradise. Now what Peter is doing here is what other writers of scripture frankly do. They so closely tie baptism to the work of Jesus and what it pictures that they use the term baptism interchangeably with the work of Jesus in His death and resurrection. That's what Paul does in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Baptism, it so profoundly pictures the saving work of Jesus that Peter uses baptism as a summary and substitution, a shorthand expression for the work of Jesus. It's not that baptism saves us. Rather, our baptism points to the work of the one who saves us. And that is why Peter returns to Jesus' resurrection at the end of verse 21. Do you see that there? He goes beyond Jesus' resurrection, clear to, through to Jesus' ascension. Peter reminds his readers that Jesus, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He has the authority to judge. And what does this mean for Peter's first readers? The Lord Jesus, having been lifted up on the cross and lifted up from the grave, he has been lifted up to the throne of glory. He rules and He reigns. And we can trust Him even in this time where we wait for God's judgment to come as it came in the days of Noah. And as we conclude, we ought to think about what this means for us. Honestly, what this text means for us is pretty much what it meant for Peter's first readers. Those walking outside the walls of this building sometimes might be confused about Christianity they may think it odd that we call each other brother or sister. They may think that the Lord's Supper is a weird ritual. They may think that the baptismal is an underutilized hot tub. And by the way, it's not that hot. Our friends and neighbors, they, they may think that we have anarchist tendencies because we don't put our hope in political rulers or lose sleep over what happens in a primary or a general election. These things and others may go beyond misunderstanding, perhaps someday to maligning, and perhaps someday to mistreatment. But should that come, we can lift up Christ in our suffering, our attitudes, in our afflictions, in our answers. We can lift up Christ in our suffering because He was lifted up for us. And He will one day lift us up from our graves, from the dead, and lift us up to heavenly glory. He has that power and authority. Everything and every one has been subjected to Him. So, dear Christian, lift up Christ from day to day, for He was lifted up for you. Let's pray together.